I painted this picture for the for the designers. I said that you've got to imagine this thing. This is something that's ancient and you've got to imagine it basically stalking around the the campfire of some cavemen. And also it's it's the specter of death in this movie. It's basically uh, the thing that nobody wants to speak to. This house that we enter at the beginning with this these family members who don't know how to communicate with each other is clouded in the death of the mother. And so when you look at this thing, it can't look like um, some alien abstraction. It's got to look like you're staring death in the face. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a young woman must protect her family from a terrifying supernatural entity in director Rob Savage's horror mystery, The Boogeyman. Based on the short story by Stephen King, the film tells the story of a high school student reeling from the death of her mother. When a desperate patient of her psychiatrist father unexpectedly shows up at their home seeking help, he leaves behind a chilling paranormal creature that preys on families and feeds on the suffering of its victims. In addition to The Boogeyman, Savage's other directorial credits include the features Dashcam, Host, and Strings, and episodes of the series Soulmates, Britannia, Fear House, True Horror, and Bite Size Horror. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Savage spoke with director Parker Finn about filming The Boogeyman. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. So, uh, this is this is opening weekend for you. Yeah, just super exciting. Tell them how my hand's shaking. <laughs> um, and I'm sure you have been just like going crazy doing press and just inundated with with you know those kinds of questions. So I figured my goal for today, since we're doing this at the Directors Guild, mm. is um, I want to ask more about craft, right? And, okay. and stuff that I think that, that directors who might be listening might be interested in. Um, and I want to start right at the beginning mm-hmm. with the opening shot, right? Oh yeah. I love the opening shot of this film. Um, I think it is like just really elegant, really special, and also just like sets the audience up that like, yeah, this movie is not safe. Right. Um, which yeah. I love about it. So, so I'm, I'm curious about what your approach was and, and how you developed that opening shot and, mm-hmm. and what you were thinking. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was basically our way of saying this movie may be PG 13, but we're not fucking around. Like there's a maniac in the driver's seat and we, we could kill any of these, you know, cherub kids that we're about to introduce. And, um, it felt important for a movie called the boogeyman, which is a bit of a kind of, you know, it's a bit of an eye roll of a title that you want to kind of like reclaim with some ferocity. And, um, we had this, we had this opening scene, the idea of, um, this, this, uh, this screaming kid whose, whose scream is cut short. And I wanted, I wanted to feel like the audience was almost kind of leaning forward being like, you know, they're not, they're not going to do it. They're going to flirt with it, but they're not going to do it. And then when we actually kill the kid that there's almost a kind of, um, there's a kind of coldness to the way that we shoot it. And one of the references that I was, that I was, calling on that I was showing Eli Bourne, our amazing DP and our production team was the, um, 
the opening, one of the opening scenes of Midsummer, where, uh, uh, you know, Florence Pugh gets a phone call that something very tragic has happened to her family. And you get this kind of um, uh, dispassionate shot that just kind of drifts through the scene of the atrocity and has no emotion about it. And there's almost something, um, there's there's something so cruel about uh, introducing something that's so dark and so fucked up and having the camera almost be a kind of God's eye view that doesn't, that's not, uh, emotionally attached to what's happening. It felt kind of interesting that the camera just drifts past almost in that kind of, you know, it's the only shot in the movie that's a motion control shot. It's got that kind of like glacial finchery thing that it kind of just drifts past the child, almost not, not paying attention to its screams. There was some, felt like there was something disturbing about that that sets a nice tone. Uh, totally. And I think, you know, like what I feel from it is you're making the audience almost complicit you know, which is, which is so interesting. And, and you mentioned a, a maniac being in the, I mean, you're the maniac in the mm. driver's seat, um, which, which I love. And it sets up, I mean, it's amazing to me that, that you were able to make a film where in the opening shot, you murder a toddler basically. <laughs> and later in the film, you rip a woman in half and somehow it's PG 13, yeah. um, which is fantastic. Well, the, I, studio, the studio, the studio, well, like we, you know, we can preview with this, but there's no way it's going in the movie. So enjoy your previews because they, <laughs> they really never thought that opening scene would make it to cinemas. Nice. Well, you know, thank goodness for uh, receptive preview audiences, which we'll get into. Um, yeah. But I want to go back because you, you, you mentioned Eli and we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the opening shot. But um, I'd love to hear just like what your guys' collaboration was and how you sort of approached the visual language of the, of the film. Because I think it's mm-hmm. really elegant. Everything feels very purposeful. Mm-hmm. You create, you know, you have this wonderful gaze on dark doorways, you know, that is so anxiety inducing. Mm-hmm. And so like, what, what did you guys talk about? What was your approach? I mean, with Eli, uh, he, t- you know, I, 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 this is the first movie that I shot in the States. So I had my team in the UK who that, you know, they were originally the people I was trying to bring on board for this. And it just didn't, didn't work out for one reason or, or another. Eli was somebody who I'd been interested in for a long time. He shot this movie, Super Dark Times, which is just Great a film. fucking incredible movie uh, that him and his film school buddy shot for like 300,000. Um, and it's one of those movies, you know, and, and you, you'll, you'll uh, relate to this. There are a few movies that you watch and they're just so good. You kind of like hate watch them because you're just like, fuck these guys. This is so good. And Super Dark Times is one of those movies and it just looks so gorgeous. It looks so close to what I want my movies to look like. So when he came up on this list as being available, we, we got in touch with him and uh, it just, uh, one of the things that I look for in collaborators is just a shared frame of reference. Like all the movies that he loved, all the movies that were foundational to him were the same movies that I'd grown up on, the same movies that I deified. And like, um, so we started out, I put together about 500 images from, and I keep, I actually keep a database of images. Every time I see a striking image or just the cinematography from a movie that I love, I'll screenshot it. I'll keep it in a folder. I've been doing this for about 10 years. And so every time I'm kind of like starting to get a visual language together for a movie that I'm working on or a TV show or whatever I'm doing, um, I'll start to pull from this database that I've got. And so I put together about 500 images and I sat with Eli the first time I met him just, just down the road from here. Uh, I was just kind of going through these images, talking about what was important to me, what the, what this movie should feel like, what it should look like. Um, and he kind of, I mean, it, 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 he was almost asleep by the end of it, but he, uh, by the end of it had drilled into him, um, 
this kind of visual language we were going for. And, and it was those same words that you, that you called on it. It's like, we wanted this movie to feel purposeful and like you were being held by the hand through a kind of classic Stephen King story. It wanted to feel like we weren't just shooting the shit out of this with three cameras, that every single shot was, um, was kind of drawing your eye to something that was important. And, uh, it was especially important coming off two movies that were shot on an iPhone where, you know, the whole point of it is to make it look artless. Like the camera's just flipping about and you're catching these scary things. I wanted this movie to feel the opposite. I wanted it to feel like, um, like every, every decision was confidently made. Uh, and yet it didn't want to feel too glossy and shiny. We had a lot of references that were natural, natural lighting or just lit with practicals and, Eli is like, I mean, he's just like, he's this, he's this kind of tall, chilled out stoner dude who, um, he'll, you know, will be on the set of a big, this big studio Disney movie. And some of the shots, some of the most beautiful shots in this movie, he'll, you know, he'll bounce a light off the ceiling and then he'll turn on the desk lamp and he'll be like, I think it looks pretty good. We should just shoot and you'll be ready in four minutes. And it's, you know, if that's totally my way of working, I get very antsy on set and we found the shared sensibility of something that was beautiful and designed, but very grounded. I love that. So, so when you guys were, were, you know, on set, I mean, certainly, certainly beforehand, but once you get onto set, like, did you create any like specific sort of like ground rules or framework to sort of like keep the visual language focused or, or what was it? I mean, how, how did that work? Yeah. So I, I kind of, I put together a Bible that I sent to everyone of just like, I mean, it's, it's not, it wasn't even really specific to this movie. It's just like a lot of my style is defined by what I really hate rather than what I really love. Like there's just <laughs> a lot of things that really irk me, especially in, um, modern movies. Like they're just, they're just things that I don't, I wouldn't want in my film. And so I put that together. I sent that to Eli. He shared it with his crew and, um, there was just a kind of understanding of, of, uh, how this thing was going to be put together, how it was going to be edited. I storyboarded the whole thing in like very basic childlike scribbles, but I kind of had the whole thing storyboarded. We kind of knew the purpose and the weight of each shot. It wasn't as though we were, um, covering this in a way where we could kind of put it together in any way in the edit. Certain shots had certain, um, uh, you were meant to kind of pay off certain beats. And so we were very, I think it helped us move a lot faster, you know, even though it's kind of counterintuitive. You think if you do, do a Ridley Scott and set up 20 cameras and just, you know, shoot a couple of takes, you can move through quite fast. But I think everyone on set knowing exactly what we were going for with each shot and what the purpose and what the feeling it was meant to elicit is just, it gave everyone this kind of pin sharp focus with every single shot. Totally. So, so, you know, you mentioned obviously the, the two films you shot previously on iPhones and like, I love host and dash cam. I think they're both Thank awesome you. for different reasons. Um, and I know you had made short films before that, um, which were, you know, not found footage and they were very elegant, but probably most people hadn't necessarily seen those. Um, was there a sense of, of coming into this film after doing two found footage movies that were sort of designed to feel very, you know, verite? Mm -hmm. Um, did you, was there like, did you feel pressure that you wanted to do something that like, you know, was sort of announcing you of, of, of your, of your formal visual style? Yeah, there was a bit of that. And there was also, I wanted this movie to not feel rooted in the here and now in the same way that those movies were. I mean, we made a 20, you know, we shot both of those movies within six months in 2020. So they were very much COVID movies. They're about, kind of taking the temperature of what was going on at the time. And I wanted this 
it's the boogeyman. It's Stephen King. It wanted to feel like something that you could have watched 20 years ago and you can watch 20 years from now and it will still feel kind of fundamental and classic. And so you're part of, um, you know, part of the, part of the challenge with this movie is like, you've got, suddenly you've got all these millions of dollars to make this movie. You've got Disney money and you can do kind of anything compared to, compared to these iPhone shop films. So then the question becomes, well, what do you do? And at first, you know, I storyboarded the movie several times over day by day by day. I'd just be, I'd be kind of refining down to what I thought was the most fundamentally important aspect of each scene. And it started out with, you know, I was directing it like, um, Fede Alvarez, who's someone who I fucking love, by the way, but like, you know, where the camera was whizzing around and, do, you know, I was like, I was obsessively trying to make every shot as, as sexy as possible um, because I could. And then you start to whittle it down to know, well, actually, what's the, what's, the, what's the point of each scene? What's the driving force of each scene? And it just became, and, it, and it's become one of the kind of foundational ways that I, that I make movies is I try and when I'm on set, know what every scene is doing pretty distinctly. And whether I'm talking to the actors or I'm talking to the cinematographer, we all get in a huddle and it feels like everyone is aiming at the same thing as opposed to um, the camera kind of fiddling about with something that's going to annoy the actor and whiz around. And, you know, they're not going to quite know what that's doing while they're trying to act. It's like everyone is, seems to be on the same page. If you can isolate the feeling you want to give the audience and the experience you want to take them through, we're all storytellers and, I managed to kind of boil it down, I think, to a point where we had, we had these storyboards that we could all huddle around and say, okay, I get it. And you can totally tell. I mean, there, you can feel so much intention just oozing from every scene. And I, I think, you know, the, the hard work pays off for sure. Um, you'd mentioned the actors um, who I, I think are all wonderful in this film. And um, you got, you know, remarkable performances out of, out of Sophie. Um, Obviously, Chris Messina is always Obviously. great, um, but I'm I'm really curious about um, Vivian because she's so good. Yeah. Um, and I know that like sometimes you know working with with child actors, especially when they have to be scared and and feel threatened and do all you know it's, it's it can be such an interesting challenge. And um, but what you get is so organic and believable and wonderful. And I'm I'm curious about how you found Vivian, yeah. how, you know, casting her and and the process of of pulling that performance out. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with child actors quite a lot and I always find it really fun and, you know, you, it, it's always totally specific to the actor. With, um, with the part of Sawyer, so originally this part was meant for, a, for a, a boy and we were auditioning kid after kid after kid and they were all just extremely annoying and I didn't like anyone. And, we, and uh, so we, we kind of opened up the brief and Vivian was one of the first actors I saw and she just had such a kind of enormous personality. And that's one of the things that I always look for when I'm casting is like, how much of this, um, how much, how much can the actors bring personality wise to the movie? I want, I want to get a sense of them in the DNA of this thing. Um, and Sawyer was always meant to be the comic relief or the, the beating heart. Like, you know, she's, she's the, um, the person you're going to latch onto, uh, first and foremost, as you watch this movie. And so, we cast her. She was nine years old. She was phenomenal in the, in the auditions and she took the notes well, but it's, you know, you get on set and, uh, with Sophie who every single day she was on set having to, you know, exist at this level of intensity and, 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 and cry and scream and wear her voice out with Sophie. She found it useful for me to, uh, she like she would ask me every time she needs to jump that I that I make a noise or I smash something or I just you know generally um uh like harass her and and then um 
and with with Vivian, with Vivian, you know, I kind of spoke to spoke to Viv and spoke to her mom at the beginning. I'm like, you know, I'm going to pretend to be the monster and I'm going to make loud noises for the bangs. And she was like, okay, fine. And um, and after a couple of days, Vivian came and she kind of tugged on my sleeve and she was like, Rob, I know you like pretending to be the monster, but I really don't need it. Like I've got, <laughs> I've got my process down. And so she would just be, you know, she's been acting since she was like five years old, and she would be able to basically close her eyes, summon whatever kind of acting demons she she could summon and tears would start streaming down her face and she'd be able to get herself wherever she needed to go with the scene. She was, she was like the most incredibly professional actor, you know, one of the most that I've ever worked with. Uh, and, you know, just kind of trapped in this nine-year-old's body. And um, yeah, and, and, and so, you know, so, so after, after a couple of days, I just started talking to her like anyone else. Oh, that's, that's great. It's so, it's so funny sometimes when you, when you work with, with child actors, especially in emotional scenes and like you have a nine-year-old and they're getting all upset. And then, you know, you call cut and you go over and you're like, Oh, Hey, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got any notes? Yeah, you know, like, it's, like, it's very, it's very bizarre. Um, how, how professional and it's great how professional some of them are, but, um, yeah, yeah I think, I think you, you really got remarkable performances out of them. Um, so I want to ask you about, the creature about yeah. the boogeyman. Um, and I have, I have, I have a bunch of questions, but, but you know, some of my, some of my, the things I'm most interested in that I think people might, might also be interested in is, um, you know, you've got, okay. It's called the boogeyman, right? Which yeah. like, I, I don't know if there is a more like familiar name for a monster in yeah. the world than that. Right. So, so a lot of pressure about what that's going to mm-hmm. be like to bring to life, um, and to do something unique, which I think, which I think you really did. So how did you go about developing the concept mm-hmm. for the monster? And then I'd also love to talk about practical digital, how you executed it. Sure. Sure. Well, it started out, I mean, I think, you know, it's true that everyone's got their own conception of the creature. And I know that, um, at the beginning, one of the things I had to fight for was this being a more kind of, uh, like feral primordial animalistic creature, which is just how I saw it. Like I've always wanted to make a full on creature feature, just like, just like this. And, um, I know a lot of people had this idea of the kind of slender man style, you know, top hat, you know, whatever, like, and we've seen a million boogeyman movies like that before. And there was a lot of, uh, back and forth about this creature and, and, and it's, it's just the kind of personality of the thing. And everyone finds different things scary to me. It wanted to be something, um, that was just ferociously single-minded, um, and so I kind of like, I painted this picture for the, for the designers. I said that you've got to imagine this thing. Uh, this isn't the thing that lives in your closet. That's trying to kind of like ape, uh, childhood fears. This is something that's ancient and you've got to imagine it basically stalking around the, the campfire of some cavemen, you know, in, in, uh, how many years BC it's got, it, it's the thing that first existed in the darkness. And we, as kids, when we start to sense that it's out there, just put this name boogeyman to it. So it's got to feel kind of like, uh, uh, battle worn and ancient. And also it's, you know, it's the specter of death in this movie. It's basically, uh, the thing that nobody wants to speak to this house that we enter at the beginning with this, these family members who don't know how to communicate with each other is clouded in the death of the mother. And so when you look at this thing, it can't look like, um, some alien abstraction. It's got to look like you're staring death in the face. And so it's like, whatever you do with this, this creature, 
you've got to basically be able to start with the human body and you can break, burn, mutilate, and put this into whatever shape you want, but it's got to look recognizably human in some way, which is where we kind of came up with this idea of the, the, the toothy grin that ends up being knuckly fingers that reveal this, this, this kind of secret. And so I kind of like, I painted this picture for the, for the designers. I said that you've got to imagine this thing, uh, this isn't the thing that lives in your closet that's trying to kind of like ape uh, childhood fears. This is something that's ancient and you've got to imagine it basically stalking around the, the campfire of some cavemen, you know, in, in uh, how many years BC. It's, got, it, it's the thing that first existed in the darkness. And we as kids, when we start to sense that it's out there, just put this name Boogeyman to it. So it's got to feel kind of like uh, uh, battle-worn and ancient. And also it's, you know, it's the specter of death in this movie. It's basically uh, the thing that nobody wants to speak to. This house that we enter at the beginning with this, these family members who don't know how to communicate with each other is clouded in the death of the mother. And so when you look at this thing, it can't look like um, some alien abstraction. It's got to look like you're staring death in the face. And so it's like, whatever you do with this, this creature, uh, you've got to basically be able to start with the human body and you can break, burn, mutilate and put this into whatever shape you want, but it's got to look recognizably human in some way. And, and what I love too is your choice to like not overexpose the mythology to mm -hmm. keep a lot of stuff sort of mysterious. I think it makes it much scarier, especially for something like the boogeyman that has mm -hmm. so many different potential types of origin stories. Um, you know, it allows, it allows the audience to sort of craft their own version onto yeah. it really successfully. I think. Yeah. Know. That was one thing that I was big on. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big plot guy. I mean, you can see I'm not a big plot guy. I'm a more about, uh, the, 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 the feeling and the atmosphere and the visuals and the, the performances. And, and I wanted the, I, like the thing, one of the things that drew me to this, to this movie and the idea of trying to do, you know, the definitive take on a, on a boogeyman movie and this, of this character was, uh, was the idea of something that, that isn't trying to reinvent the law that we all know. I mean, everyone, you know, everyone from, from the, the, you know, the age you can speak knows the boogeyman. It's the first way that, that we kind of contextualize evil or some, something out there in the shadows that wants to do us harm. The idea that the universe is, a, is, you know, not a place that always wishes us well. And it did, did, this movie didn't want to kind of conflate that. It just wanted to, uh, to basically darken and deepen that feeling that we all know, um, that this, this is a creature that, that, that lives and thrives in darkness and that this is something that's driven back by the light. I mean, anyone, anyone who's ever been a terrified kid and we all have is you all know that, you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you think something's in your room, you turn on the desk side lamp, you turn on your bedside lamp and you know, you know, in that oasis of light, you're safe. So it wasn't about trying to reinvent that. It was about trying within each of our set pieces to give new life to that, to, to, to make you feel like that kid who's just woken up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night to make you feel like that kid again. And, you know, part of that was about introducing new ways to play with this idea of light and dark, introducing things like the moon ball and the video game with the flashes. Um, but it was also about not, um, not trying to over explain or kind of specify too much the creature's law beyond what people already innately know. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And I think that what you managed to do in the film so wonderfully is, is you, you capture something that, that feeling of, of 
childhood fear, exactly what you're saying, waking up in the middle of the night and looking at like a, a you know, a, an open closet door that's mm-hmm. dark, you know, that, that it's, it's such a genuine primal thing that I think like most audience members will instantly recognize, mm-hmm. you know, it, it has that universal terror. It's, it takes you back to being a kid, to being scared of the dark, which yeah. is why I think it's, it's so like anxiety inducing in moments. And it's also like, I just hadn't seen a movie like that in a, in a while, like a kind of classic haunted house movie in the style of like the first conjuring movie really played on those fears. Right. That, that was a movie that really made me feel like a terrified little kid again that kind of took this horror and made it, you know, made the, the, the kind of battlefield for this, this story of good and evil, your house, your bedroom, your closet. Yeah. And it just felt like I hadn't, I, I love those movies. There's some, you know, this is some of my favorite movies that I was pulling from. And it was, it was, uh, it was an attempt to get back to that kind of like fundamental uh, horror story. Love that. So, so I, I want to drill down. Okay. So yeah. you're on the day on set, mm. The, the boogeyman creature is in a scene, right? What, what's in front of the camera? What's, what was your, what was your process? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so curious because I, I think you have something that's very effective there. And mm-hmm. as I watch, you know, I, I'm, I have, you know, uh, some like theories about how you may have pulled some of this off, but I'm yeah, also, yeah. I'm just, I'm curious to know because I, I think you, you've executed it so well. Yeah, God. Well, it was a mixture. So, so some of the, you know, some of the shots, uh, where the creature is just, lurking or is doing something where it's not interacting was just an empty space. And we were having to imagine the thing. We had a boogeyman head that was 3D printed and like slathered in KY jelly. So it was all glittery. And uh, I had it on a stick, like a, like a, a pantomime horse. And so, you know, when the creature is in the corner in the, in, when, as the car lights are going past, I'd be there kind of holding up this stick. So we had something to, to reference. And so when we took it to folks, our amazing VFX team, I was able to say, well, look, that's what a real boogeyman head looks like in the space. You see how the lights playing off. It's got to look at least as good as that, um, rather than just an empty space for them to fill in. Some of the scenes where the creature is, you know, pouncing on top of Sophie or knocking things over or just interacting with the space. We had a guy in bobbles, like, you know, acting his heart out, like screaming like the creature and running after our actors. And, uh, which was really, you know, which was really, uh, effective. He did a, he did a really good job of like conjuring some demon in those sounds he was making. And then sometimes it was just blind faith. It was literally, uh, me showing the actors this concept art so they could kind of get a grasp on what this creature looked like. But it was me holding this pantomime horse, running at them, yelling, and, uh, like it's testament to how great our actors are that they, they, um, one that they, that they trusted the process and two, that they were able to like sell the fear because that was, that was one of my big concerns. It's like making sure that the fear and the reactions were appropriate, the eye lines, all of this, all of this kind of technical stuff. I'd never done a sequence as involved as the, uh, the final fight in the basement. And, um, I had my storyboards. I kind of like, uh, you know, I kind of knew we were getting what we needed, but we were on child hours with Vivian and we were racing through and we had fire effects and we were shooting till two in the morning trying to get it done. And so you just kind of hope and pray that you've got enough pieces, uh, to put together this sequence and, and, uh, the, the, the creature's presence will be felt properly because so much of that is in the actor's performance. 
Yeah. I, I love that. And I like to think that the whole reason you became a director is so you could chase children around on set <laughs> pretending to be a monster and scare them. Um, so listen, Rob, I think you have made like a, a really amazing, scary, thoughtful, incredible film. I, I love it. Um, and, and knowing, having gone from, from host to dash cam to now this, which is a much bigger movie, um, is there something that you learned through the process that you feel like you're going to carry forward and take with you as a director? Yeah. You know, I think that the, the thing, the big takeaway from this movie and the big, um, surprise, and I'd be curious if you found this, I mean, I'm sure you did on, on smile. It's like that there was room for that same scrappiness that I found on, on, you know, my two iPhone features and there was room for like improvisation and there was room for, uh, just, you know, feeling that spontaneity on the day. Like we made two movies prior to this that were completely improvised. You know, we'd show up every day with two, you know, with, with, uh, two bullet points. So, and so, you know, character runs from, from monster, something scary happens and you've got to just figure it out on the day, which is great. And it's like, it's electric and it's, it's totally, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it totally fits in that world where you're making these movies with no oversight and just where you're your own boss and you're making it with your friends. I thought there'd be no room for that on a studio movie and everything would have to be, you know, the, the moment I go a syllable off the script that, 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 uh, the studio would be breathing down my neck and I'd be, you know, uh, that I'd have to be coloring within the lines. And, and I found, more and more as, as, as the shoot went on and, and, uh, you know, and it's testament to the, to the, to the great execs at the studio and the, the producers who, you know, 21 laps, like there was so much room for that and they could see and they could trust that we could, you know, we were, we were making good on the, on the film that we pitched, but we were also discovering a lot of stuff as we went along. Um, some of the best scenes in this movie, some of the best lines of dialogue were improvised with the actors on the day. There was room to kind of like play around some of the best scares. Like I'd get to set a couple of hours early and just wander around and like sometimes rewrite a scene, uh, you know, that morning and, you know, come to everyone and be like, I thought of something 10 times scary. We're going to do this instead. And those are some of the best scares in the movie. Um, I think just like leaning more into that now, you know, the, the first couple of weeks on this movie, I was just trying not to get fired. And then I kind of like got into the flow of it. Uh, I think going into the next movie, it's like just making sure that making sure that I keep that balance, because I think that's part of the reason that, that um, filmmakers like us with that kind of indie background can thrive in the studio horror space. Definitely. Well, you definitely thrived, man. And uh, congratulations. The Thanks, film is man. awesome. And uh, I think, I, I know I'm definitely... Very excited to see what you do next. I think everybody else will be as well. Congrats. Amazing. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.